Okay. So we got the brain pill, rudimentary uh, magician, or super gorilla. Okay, well, how about we stop? How about we stop and actually use this as content for... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But are we yeah, recording. We are already recording. Well, we're, we're already recording, but... But um, I think we might want to do an feedback. intro. Okay. okay. Feedback, but that was confusing last week. <laughs> oh. We just uh, launched into it and didn't do the intro first. Thanks, Susan. <laughs> was that Susan? <laughs> yes, that's the only other person I know that listens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you really need to thank her as well for listening i think that is amazing my wife doesn't listen to me on the radio or our podcast she is not interested so good evening you were listening to the yena podcast today is tuesday the 2nd of august and tonight with me i've got mark hey and bronwyn hello um and vanagard does, does vanagard want to say hello uh, Vanagand, uh, we are training him not to bark, and he's doing very well, thank you. So do not undo my hard work. Right. What sets him off? <laughs> um, actually, strangely enough, people in Orange Hive is. So unfortunately, he barks at a lot of uh, workers and a lot of uh, construction people in the oh, neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> it comes off very were, racist for a little black maybe, dog. Maybe you were referring to the sweatshirt that I'm wearing. Which is actually uh, no, your your sweatshirt's red. red. Yes, yes, indeed. We're both oh, wearing yeah. red sweatshirts. We are <laughs> really trying to set him off. But I think this is the first time we've had a pet on the show. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I am home alone this week, and I need to make sure he doesn't go after the cat treats. For anyone who can't w- watch us do this uh, podcast, um, I have an Australian Labradoodle who is sitting on my lap. Uh, it's been an interesting week, and Mark, you put out a, a newsletter. We were just having a bit of a talk about uh, your website that you'd put together that let people explore the New Zealand data about baby names. It's a bit tangential to scepticism. I obviously <laughs> managed to, to make it fit because it, it did come from a skeptics in the pub meeting. I think it might even have been Gold, possibly, who first brought it up. Maybe he was dating Dell at the time. And I think Dell might have used Luke for one of her children's names um, and I think maybe wanted to use Leia as well. But yes, the, the whole idea that popular media might have an effect on how popular uh, a baby's name is. And yeah, all these years I never did anything about it. And then finally last week, I kind of it took a couple of weekends and, and threw it together. It's actually been really fascinating. It's been really fun to play with the data and just, you know, go through the charts and and try and figure out some of the reasoning possibly for why names become popular and why names become unpopular. Yeah, I guess that's that has been a popular perception that names do come in and out of fashion with uh, with popular popular media and, and TVs and movies and stuff. I was just reflecting before the podcast, Mark, that you've got a biblical name. So uh, <laughs> your, <laughs> your name is perennially popular uh, when you look it up on the, on the charts. But yeah. My I, name has dropped away. I, I don't think mine's quite dropped away, but it's certainly a shadow of its former self. And Bronwyn, I'm sorry, your name drops away to zero as well or less than 10 in a year. Um, a lot of names do. I, th- I think there's a widening. There's a lot. So there's one graph on my site that shows how many different names are used every year, and that's going up. And I guess with that increase in the number of names being used, the popularity of individual names is probably going to go down. 
Well, it's a, uh, it's a it's a fun site to play with. So um, maybe some oh, yes. and have a play with it. Yes, for the for the listeners that want to have a play, it's at names.honeychurch.org for now. Although I quite possibly will buy a domain name for it at some point. Yeah, I, I think that the last minute I've kind of realized that maybe the most utility is for people that are thinking of names for their babies and just trying to figure out, is this name coming into fashion or is it going out of fashion? Is this crashing so hard that I'm going to be the laughing stock to call my baby this? Um, <laughs> or is it or is it a rising star? Or, I mean, or is it a, a growing problem like all those children named Aria and Kylo and... <laughs> Leonidas. Well, I've just put an interesting name into search in your website. Yeah. And it has a very interesting pattern to it. And that oh. name is Winston. Ah. <laughs> Do we think this is affected by Winston Peters? <laughs> no, I think it might well be Winston Churchill because there's a big peak um, oh. in the mid 40s. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. <laughs> Oh, Craig, so, this is the ultimate segue. You you have exceeded yourself here. <laughs> but isn't that interesting, those, those other peaks? Does, that is 1941. There is a massive peak, like from the year before, it's 55 in 1940, and then the year before that is zero in 39, and it goes up to ni- basically 99 children in 41 were called Winston. And then it drops pretty quickly as well. Like by 1946, it's back down to zero children. But yes, but then it just pops up again every sort of what, <laughs> 20 years. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, barely. Kind of weird, I, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, bear in mind that anything under 10 shows a zero on this site. So those, right. pike, those peaks won't quite be as stark as they look. But it, yeah, it definitely rises occasionally, doesn't it? Hmm. Surely it's not Winston Peters' influence. <laughs> Anyway, if you're interested, as I said, names.honeychurch.org for now um, and just have a play around. Any suggestions, email us at podcast at skeptics.nz and uh, I'd, I'd love to get people's ideas on what I could add to the site. Mm. But yeah, sorry, your segue. We, we almost went back <laughs> off topic again, didn't we? Yes. So Winston, Pe- no, Winston Churchill, you want to talk about <laughs> Yeah, it turns out Winston Peters hasn't had quite the same effect as Winston Churchill on naming children in New Zealand. But yes, so the article I wrote for last week's newsletter, I I just really enjoyed it. I mean, as I wrote in the newsletter, I am suffering. I am watching a TV show called Europa, The Last Battle, which is full on Nazi propaganda. Um, It is it is so anti-Semitic. It just makes me cringe. It's really horrible to see how much hatred is in this thing. And it's one guy, Tobias, who's probably made it in his basement or, you know, in his little flat by himself. I I don't, (laughs) I guess I'm, I'm, it's an ad hominem, right? I'm, I'm attacking the character. That might, might not even be true, but it's got that amateur feel that other conspiracy documentaries um, like Zeitgeist have. You know, one person basically downloading a whole bunch of footage and then sticking it together in Power Director or some video making software. So, despite this amateurish feel, a lot of people in conspiracy circles in New Zealand, or a few people at least that I've seen screenshots of, are uh, talking about how it's an eye opener and it's this. It's this amazing thing because it's giving you the other side of history. It's it's ignoring the facts of how World War II was 
and it's just making up nonsense about how Hitler was a pacifist and he hated war and he didn't want it. And Churchill was a warmonger and it's all Churchill's fault. Um, and the one bit I got to where it just got too far was that one particular claim that Churchill was too drunk during the war to deliver the speeches himself. And so he used the voice actor for Winnie the Pooh to do it for him. Uh, and I thought this was such a great claim that it was like, I have to investigate this. You know, all the other quotes that were supposedly Jewish people talking about how they secretly planned to take over the world. It's like, obviously, those are made up rubbish. But this one, I wonder what's behind this one. I wonder whether there's a nugget of truth. And it turns out, as I wrote, there was. Um, it, it's very complicated. Um, and the waters have been muddied by people like the historian David Irving. And as I write in the article, basically, David Irving talks about how he interviewed this voice actor, Norman Shelley. And in 1981, Norman Shelley had confessed that he had recorded some of Churchill's greatest speeches. Uh, and then eventually Norman Shelley, this voice actor's son, found a, a vinyl record after he died. And it had a label that said BBC Churchill speech artist, Norman Shelley, September 7, 1942. And so there were these little bits of evidence that seemed to back up the idea that this was going on, that the, and the backstory to it, the reasoning that was given that I found in a guardian article was that because Churchill was waging a war and because the speeches he gave in Parliament were never recorded because there weren't microphones in Parliament, that he had been asked if he could record again for the BBC, that he could go into the BBC and re-record for the public to hear, that it could be broadcast maybe that evening to the nation. Um, and so, again, it's plausible. That kind of makes sense. Not that he was too drunk thing, because he obviously wasn't that drunk. He waged a war and he did fairly well at it. Um, but at least the idea that he was too busy, that, you know, that they they might think about getting someone else to do his speeches. And But despite all of that, you know, I started to find those flaws in the story. So first, I recognized the name David Irving from a movie I'd watched, Denial, where he had sued somebody for libel who had written that he was a Holocaust denier. And it's a really fascinating case because at the end of that libel lawsuit, the judge agreed that he was a Holocaust denier. <laughs> so <laughs> much as he was trying to clear his name, I think he did basically exactly the opposite. Um, it's a really good dramatization. That movie is definitely worth watching. So, you know, for starters, again, maybe poisoning the well a little bit, but I'd be worried that someone who's a Holocaust denier maybe isn't that much of a good historian. Then it turns out that Norman Shelley died a year before this interview apparently took place. So the interview was 1981. Norman Shelley died in 1980. So what the hell is going on there? I mean, did David Irving just make up the whole interview? Maybe he just got the date wrong. But again, it doesn't point to him being a good historian. Um, and then I found what the truth actually was, which was that Norman Shelley was used at least a couple of times to record um, Churchill's speeches, but not 
any of the famous speeches. So the um, fight them on the beaches speech was June the 4th, 1940. And that evening, when supposedly Norman Shelley's re-recording um, of the speech was played, apparently the BBC didn't play Churchill at all. So it couldn't have been a Churchill impersonator either. What they did was they got the newsreader to read out some little bits of the speech, but in the newsreader's own voice, not pretending to be Churchill. Um, but then later on, apparently the British Council said to Churchill that he should re-record because they wanted to send it to the US so the US could play it on the radio. And at that point, it sounds like Churchill said, use a voice actor. And they used a voice actor. I couldn't see any evidence that it was Norman Shelley, but it kind of makes sense. He was well known for doing a passable impression of Churchill. And apparently this was given to Churchill to listen to. And he um, he stamped it. He said, yep, seal of approval, all good. It was then sent to the US. Again, no evidence that it was ever used. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I had to listen to both of the recordings and they do certainly have similar voices. Although I guess it is the sort of the, the British accent from the time. Yeah, listening to Churchill's speech um, about the we will find them on the beaches. Um, there's certainly there seems to be some evidence of his drinking. In that, in that <laughs> it, it might <laughs> be, but words. but that version that um, that I pulled up the other day and I linked to in the article that was from 1949. That was from well after the war, and that was when the BBC again went to Churchill and said we'd love for you to record the speech. You know, we want them for posterity. They're, you know, part of English history. And presumably by that point, well after the war, he could probably afford himself the luxury of apparently a bottle of champagne a day at one point, um, plus extras. Um, So, yeah, by that point, quite possibly he was sozzled. Um, But, yeah, when you listen to the two, when you listen to Norman Shelley. Authentic. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. When you listen to Norman Shelley doing Winnie the Pooh and you listen to um, Churchill a few years later, they do sound similar. But of course, that's not even taking into consideration Norman Shelley trying to pretend to be Churchill. So I kind of imagine it as if this is just what Norman Shelley sounds like normally, it is conceivable that he could do a good impression if he was deliberately trying, you know, putting on the mannerisms and getting the pauses in the right places, that kind of thing. And the physical evidence, the um, the record that was found, apparently a private company paid him in 1942. I think they wanted to sell a set of Churchill's great speeches. And that one was a 1942 speech about how the war was going in North Africa. And probably it was a, it was one of a set that they got him to do like a whole bunch of these speeches. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find that that company didn't even pretend it was Churchill, just that, you know, it was Churchill's speeches, because as I said, Churchill didn't record them until the late 40s for the BBC. So I'm, I'm struggling to see what the connection is here, that w- why is this sort of smoking gun evidence of um, Holocaust denial? Or- <laughs> <laughs> so how, is, how does that how does that jigsaw piece fit in? Yeah, so I, I think the the point here is your what these I guess neo Nazis pro Nazi um, regime people are doing is they're trying to put Hitler in as good a light as possible, and part of that is trying to put Churchill as the counterpoint in as bad a light as possible. So any smearing you can do with Churchill so drunk that he couldn't give his speeches. He's a warmonger and he was the one that really wanted war. All of that is just kind of part of the background setting for then putting Hitler on a pedestal. And hey, 
Hitler just wanted peace. He just believed in a white country for white people, and he just didn't want to see the German purity lost. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the country wanting to keep their purity and so on and so forth? So, yeah, I, I think it's just it, it's just setting the background there. The more you can slate Churchill, the more you can make Hitler look good. Poisoning the well. Yeah, but this time it's not me doing it. It's uh, it's Nazi propaganda doing it. So, yeah, I would highly recommend do not watch Europa, The Last Battle. I mean, it wasn't easy to find, which is nice. The fact that, you know, it took me a while to find it, to download a copy is great. Um, but it's it's hateful stuff. It's really, really horrible. I'm now five episodes in and it's starting to drag quite heavily on me. But I will make it to the end. I will get to episode 10. Where are, the, where are the cool kids going these days to uh, to find these things online? Uh, You're still Pirate Bay? Yeah, I, I think I did. Get, and I'm not sure the cool kids do go to Pirate Bay, but I think I did go to the Pirate Bay for this one, yes. Yes, very good. Well, I, I think that's uh, justified when you were doing research. You're not really... Uh, um, maybe you are uh, <laughs> taking money out of somebody's pocket, but... That's right. And I, I research all the movies that I download. That's why I'm downloading them, right? Because I'm researching. <clears throat> so um, when I wrote the New Zealand last, I um, had to talk about um, some misinformation that I spouted on the previous podcast. And it was just an offhand comment, but I had seen a, a Twitter thread where somebody was claiming that um, 90% of the plankton in the Atlantic had uh, disappeared and had been wiped out by, by uh, well, by something. The implication at the time, I think, was, uh, was that it was climate change. But uh, as I've delved into this a little bit more, uh, that's certainly not the case. Um, so it was quite interesting to research this. And by research this, I mean I watched a video that uh, Rebecca Watson uh, <laughs> recorded for a start. So she sort of um, pulled up the um, the claim that people were making that there's 90% of the plankton in the Atlantic Ocean had, uh, had disappeared and uh, we were all in big trouble. And uh, it certainly worried me at the time when I came across the information. Because apparently plankton is quite um, it's quite vital to uh, the world's ecosystem in that it produces about half the oxygen. <laughs> so um, we kind of would have noticed if uh, if that much plankton had disappeared. Yeah, there's an interesting story behind it in that the this claim was published by a Scottish newspaper, the the Sunday Post. Um, and they basically picked up uh, a website from a research foundation uh, in, in scare quotes uh, called the Global Oceanic Environmental Survey. And this is run by a guy, a PhD guy who apparently doesn't seem to have done much publishing. Uh, he's only got one scientific paper that published and he he is blaming the decline of plankton on plastic pollution into the Atlantic and the and the way he has um, established that 90% of it is gone is that he has got his mates on 13 different yachts to do samples in the water and uh, and try and figure out how much plankton there is in the in the Atlantic um, you say yachts. That basis you say yachts yes. so yachts. you know proper yachts like the the one percent are doing a ad hoc yes. science experiments 
Well, I guess we can see where the funding's coming from. I'm surprised he's not researching uh, the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. Well, interesting. You should talk about that because oh. I, I saw a I saw a uh, an article about the plausibility of the Loch Ness monster existing. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> so well, I don't know. I don't think you should. This is an interesting uh, tangent. <laughs> We're going to go around in circles here because I'll start spouting stuff that I've barely researched and mm. <laughs> it turned out to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that again. But but this no. is how we get this is how we get listener engagement by right. being wrong. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, I can be wrong a whole lot if that's what you want. <laughs> sure. But anyway, this this um, this guy, Dr. Howard Dryden, he runs um, a, a series of companies that um, provide services for removing plastic pollution. Um, so he's basically sort of promoting his own companies and uh, oh. and putting putting this idea out there. And yeah, so Rebecca make a whole bunch of good points. R- really. Uh, the the Atlantic is a huge place, and you, you couldn't actually find the decline of all the plankton in the Atlantic Ocean by doing a, a small sample of the thirteen different yachts. And it turns out that he seems to be a global uh, a climate change denier as well. Um, so in in the paper that he wrote, um, he's got the quote: "The entire world has overfocused on greenhouse gases to the detriment of nature. Climate change is a simple equation. What goes into the atmosphere must." be removed we are biologists and perhaps think we think differently to other professions but it is our view that land-based nature will benefit from extra carbon dioxide in the environment (laughs) so yeah he seems to be a full-on climate change denier or at least uh one of the flavor of people think that uh, extra carbon dioxide is going to be good for us can can I just put in another quick aside that, uh, you know, we apologize as the, uh, the modern day skeptic society for any uh, pseudoscientific climate change denial that the society might have been involved with in the past. Can we do this? <laughs> do we want to talk about this quickly? Well, yes, that would it would actually make a good target of discussion, wouldn't yeah. it? So, admit our sins. Admit our sins. <laughs> this confession time. Mm-hmm. Well, I've never been a climate change denier. Neither have I. <laughs> so, but I, I think uh, it was probably at least in the well, certain, certainly our founders um, had some views that would today be labelled as sort of climate change denial. Uh, Dennis Dutton, um, who was one of the founders of the New Zealand Skeptics, certainly had some doubtful views about the role of humans in climate change. I believe at least two of our journal editors have also been to some extent climate deniers in the past. And I think to an extent that has affected the articles that we have published, um, mm-hmm. which was kind of unfortunate to, to find out. Yeah, you, you kind of imagine that some people would have come around to the realization they were wrong. Well, I'm not so certain I can confidently make that prediction. Um, given how uh, some people in the media uh, act, even even in the presence of overwhelming information and, and evidence that climate change is happening. The person I'm thinking of there is uh, Leighton Smith. I don't know whether you've ever listened to uh, to anything that he's written. He, he was on, not sure whether it was News Tools. It might have been News Tools, it'd be. But yeah, he, was, he, he has a podcast where he is very much still in the camp of denying climate change. 
Right. So, yes, we've had Vincent Gray in the past. He died a few years ago, but he was the, I think, one of the founders of the Climate Science Coalition in New Zealand, which is a climate uh, climate denying or climate change denying group. Uh, just reading his Wikipedia page, um, it turns out that he was chief chemist of the Coal Research Association at one point. <laughs> But we we have published articles from him, and I think he might have been the journal editor at some point. Right. Yeah. So what was it back in about 2014, 2015? We put together a statement saying that climate skeptics are not us. That's a good paraphrasing. I like that. <laughs> But I mean, I guess, you know, this revelation is sort of inspired by the fact that we have been going through the old journal articles, um, getting them ready for archiving. And also as part of that skeptical calendar, 365 days of skeptical events, you know, we've been going through these old articles and really having to have a bit of a, you know, think through and reflection about, you know, what skeptics has meant in the past and what it means today and what our future is going to be. Yeah, and not only for climate science, right, but there are other topics that um, we probably need to maybe do some amending on. There mm-hmm. are other issues that maybe we uh, we should be honest about how we've been less than stellar in the past as an organization. Yes, we perhaps were a product of our time. <laughs> Which is no excuse, right? We need to be better than that. Anyway, so um, yeah, that was the that was the the plankton story. So yes, it turns out that you really can't do very limited research and come to those conclusions. And there is actually an organisation that has been doing plankton research continuously for seventy years, called the Continuous Plankton Recorder Survey. And it turns out that there have been changes in plankton over time, but nothing to the extent of ninety percent of it disappearing from the entire Atlantic Ocean. So um, we're all good for now. Okay. But we need to be aware that maybe in the future, all the plankton will die and then we will. (laughs) Yes. It would not be good for all that to disappear. Oh, that's so cheery. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, it's 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 um, I think it's a a better message than than what I had last time, which was completely dismal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. Always look on the bright side of life. Oh, Monty Python. Well played. So, Bronwyn, you were going to talk about IQ tests. Yeah, and I guess it is actually um, maybe not as fantastic of a segue as you gave, Mark. But, you know, nonetheless, IQ tests are based on faulty premises and uh, fraud. Um, But, yeah, you know... um, it came up, as I, as I say in the um, in the newsletter article, the topic came up because we ended up getting some feedback and Mensa was mentioned. And, you know, Mark and I end up having not quite a brawl, um, but just a friendly uh, discussion of who was going to write about what. Now, me having had personal experience with Mensa um, back in my home province, um, I did join as a, you know, confused university student, I suppose. And then Mark being really interested, obviously, in the more ridiculous end of IQ societies, um, even though high IQ societies are a ridiculous premise in and of themselves, we figured out a way to divide the topic. As it always sort of happens with me, I find the best resource after I publish in the newsletter. Um, <laughs> so I've come across this great book written by an honorary life member named, um, oh, how do I pronounce it? Victor Serbiakov. That sounds very authentic. Yeah, yeah. And it has a foreword by Isaac Asimov, who was also a former member of Mensa. Though um, apparently, whether he did that voluntarily or not is up for debate. Um, and Asimov sort of, you know, he attended meetings. 
Um, whether he enjoyed him or not, again, up for debate. Uh, but eventually he left because he, did, he didn't really like that idea of intellectual elitism. Sort of found that he had more in common with somebody who also hated Barry Goldwater as much as he did than someone who was a hun- who had a similar IQ, but a different political leaning, which is an interesting point. But going back to the origins of Mensa, um, you know, Australians are involved. Uh, one of the co-founders is an Australian. They call him a barrister in the Wikipedia article. And while he was called to the bar, he never practiced. Victor claims that he was disinherited from by his family. So he just made money off investments. And that's where his wealth came from. Um, he was obsessed with Oxford, but failed the entrance exam and sort of made himself the unofficial captain of their rowing team. So when they would go and do their practice along the river, he would be, you know, shouting directions at them, even though, you know, he wasn't really anywhere, any not associated with the team in any way. Um, so that's Roll, that's um, Roland uh, Barrel. But he, we call him the Australian, but he was only born in Sydney. Um, he, he seemed to have spent most of his life in England. The co-founder is a man named Lancelot Ware. Now, he seems to have more, I guess, claim to the title of being an intelligista. He was he went he was a mathematician. Um, he did his PhD in biochemistry and did scientific research during the war. Then he went back to Oxford as a mature student to study law. In the post-war milieu, him war and Roland meet up on a train. And they end up having a discussion about intelligence and they become friends for a brief while and they decide to form Mensa. Eventually they, what, they, how can I say this, say um, fall out because Roland had a bit of a flair to him. You know, he wanted to have lots of slipperies and robes and rituals um, to go with Mensa and where it just wasn't into that. And then from there, you had the involvement of other people like Cyril Burt. Um, Cyril Burt was an English psychologist, um, very much immersed in the whole eugenics and psychometrics and IQ tests. The big thing about him and something that could be interesting to research later is how after he died was accused of a lot of fraud um, in terms of either being careless with falsifying data or um, being deliberate in falsifying his twin data. Um, he would claim that there was he had about 53 sets of twins that were raised separately. And that's absolutely impossible um, for other research to, researchers to replicate. And someone found that he a particular coefficient that he used in his statistics were consistently three points added to all of his data sets. So really indicated that he was doing something deliberate. Um, hmm. Other accusations that came his way was um, that he falsified the existence of a couple of his uh, co-contributors. It's absolutely fascinating stuff that Victor writes about. And so you had personal experience with uh, with IQ tests. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Uh, again, it's as a Canadian, we do a lot. You know, it's very similar to an American education system in the fact that we do lots of standardized testing, and particularly a lot of this multiple choice. Um, Scantron tests, you know, those tests that you see all in American TV where the students are circling in those little circles. And, you know, if someone wants to be really funny, they try to write, you know, try to use all those Scantrons to make a really offensive word. Um, <laughs> and so that's similar sort of test because that's the easiest way that you can just pop it into a machine and gets graded. Um, right. Ab- absolutely experience with that. And I had done the SAT voluntarily. I had done the GRE voluntarily. So I was pretty primed in many ways to pass that test. And another way 
that those questions sort of pop up in the education system is that they're just given by teachers to kill time if they don't have anything in the curriculum ready to go. It's, it's like if you don't want your kids to watch a movie in class or watch an episode of Bill Nye, the science guy, you give them some Mensa word puzzles. <laughs> so and, and it's so funny to see those same questions pop up again in the test. It's like, oh, yeah, I've been it's like you feel like you've been prepared your entire life to pass this test. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, too, isn't it? I mean, if you then go and do one of these tests online, if you've encountered them before, you definitely have a leg up. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say the real test is about two hours long um, versus, say, the 20 minutes that you get for that online test that you do for um, New Zealand. Yes, I, I followed Mark's link to his newsletter and started doing the, the test and uh, <laughs> got about five minutes into it and thought, oh, geez, I'm not going to spend my time doing this. But then I clicked the submit and all the all the ones I started and answered, I got correct. So uh, I'm giving myself that. 100%. You have the perfect IQ. Well done. Wow. <laughs> it's a way to do it. Get, yes. get your agri tag. Get marked for the work you've done. <laughs> exactly. Just, just, just do the ones you feel comfortable with, and if you can get them all right, then <laughs> yeah, quit while you're ahead. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the interesting thing about Mensa is that you know you could do the test. Um, however, if you had dyslexia, there is a um, a culture fair test, which um, sort of is more directed towards um, people who who don't really have great English or have um, um, disabilities with in terms of reading. Or if you are of a certain vintage, you can submit. Um, SAT tests from, I think, before the 1990s. So if you had things like your GRE, your SAT, your MCAT, or your GMAT, um, those sort of standardized tests are applicable. So you could bypass everything if you have, um, you know, your documentation. So do we know how many members there are around the world and in New Zealand? I don't because I'm not part of that. <laughs> But I think it's probably easy enough to find out. Um, I think they're looking at a worldwide membership of about 134,000. And so, Mark, you were talking in newsletter yesterday about some other high IQ societies. Yeah. <laughs> Which... Yeah. As Bronwyn says, I, I went to the extremely absurd end of things and, uh, and found a really nice, if not scathing, um, rational wiki article. I think every rational wiki article is a little bit scathing, um, but this one was scathing of high IQ societies. It's a little bit old, um, but it's got a list of a whole bunch of them. It turns out I kept finding more. The more I searched, the more I found. And a bunch of the links, thankfully, went to uh, archive.org. So these were high IQ societies that are defunct. They're no longer running, which is great because from what I found, there's a whole bunch of crazy going on in these high IQ societies. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them are just vanity. Some of them, like there was a there was a set of five for different IQ levels that seemed to be someone's pet project where, you know, he was the first member of all of them. And of course, he's a member of the highest IQ one. Presumably, he never had to be tested himself. He's just testing other people to see whether <laughs> they're allowed in. Um, it's like a, like a pyramid scheme. He, he got in at the start. So. <laughs> yes, so he's fine. And I, I think a few of them are like this because the, the Giga Society, I've since found since my article that there are actually two Giga Societies um, and Giga is supposed to be, I think, one in a billion membership. So there, there really shouldn't be many people in this society. So there's two of them. And I, I don't know how much rivalry is there is between them. But the one that was interesting um, was the one that, I think it was serious 
but there's definitely some tongue-in-cheek stuff going on there, like the the part where you can send an email to future society members and get a response. That was really weird, just a form you fill in with a question, and then eventually you might find that your question and an answer from the future has been pasted onto the site. So that bit's a joke, but it didn't seem like the whole site was a joke. The, the guy running it, I think it was Paul Coymans, uh, he seems quite into IQ and quite serious about the whole thing. And he's written some high IQ tests that other societies seem to use. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit odd. Then there was the Hall of the Ancients, which was just oh, eugenics and other stuff, a bit like Bronwyn talked about with Mensa, but even more so. Um, and started by a psychic. So <laughs> like... Oh, any any high IQ society started by a psychic is going to be a weird place to be. Um, and then the ultimate, I you know, the ultimate one, the one that's right at the very top is the terror society. And this, this is the bit that was, you know, just so handy that it brought it back to New Zealand. The fact that it's a it's a Kiwi from Hamilton who started this one in a trillion IQ society. Um <laughs> And the idea, you know, that anybody would have a society where only one in a trillion people is clever enough to join it. Like, what the hell? This isn't a real thing, except him and several other people who are like are close to him are all members. They're all apparently in and around Hamilton clever enough that they are. They are eligible. And I, I didn't realize Hamilton was like this. Like, if anything, the people I've heard talking about Hamilton are quite disparaging. Um, <laughs> it turns out a, that somewhere there's a pocket of geniuses up there. Yeah, it's a hotbed of high IQ people. <laughs> Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, um, they do have, they've, they've got a university there. So mm-hmm. it's certainly possible <sighs> that there's some smart people there. Yeah. So I, I, spent about an hour like much more time that i should have done watching the guy that started this terror society's youtube videos just looking for any inkling that he might be ultra intelligent a lot of it was him testing new cameras he'd bought or or doing little bits and bobs talking to a friend at a nut farm he was working on i mean none of it really filled me with wow this guy is the genius uh, the man, the most intelligent on the planet. So he may be, um, and maybe he's just hiding it well, but I certainly, like all the typos on his website and in his Facebook posts, I'm skeptical that he's the most intelligent man on the planet. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. He seems he seems nice enough, but I am doubting his claims officially here on our podcast. <laughs> So when you say you think he's a, he seems like a lovely guy, you don't see any evidence of eugenics or questionable beliefs like we do, aside from the fact that, oh, I'm the most intelligent person, um, that we would see in other uh, high IQ societies. Well, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't seem to be a eugenicist, but, you know, that doesn't rule out that he could be in his spare time. It might be a hobby he's got. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll just ask him whether he thinks that low IQ people should be allowed to reproduce. <laughs> well, there's people in Mensa who think they can't. Or shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, sure there are. That's worrying, isn't it? Because, of course, this always comes from the people who are in the group that aren't going to be forcibly sterilized. Mm-hmm. Mm, indeed. I'd be willing to bet that uh, that group contains a lot of people who aren't going to have any children as well. 
Oh, is, isn't that the thesis of the movie Idiocracy? The idea that uh, the more intelligent people are too neurotic to have children? Yes, perhaps so. Yeah. I think it is. Not a great movie, but uh, it, it was an interesting, interesting idea. I think I may be. I mean, I can I can talk forever. I'm happy to talk about anything. How's the weather with you, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had a hell of a lot of rain, and and I one of my favourite websites to go to is the uh, Auckland Water Supply <laughs> website, which lets you <laughs> have a look and see what the dam levels are for each of the the dams that uh, that supply Auckland, and they're all. We were about ninety nine percent full at the moment. We had so much rain, so uh, we're like about fifteen percent above the the uh, historical average. So so that's good. But we had too much rain. I want it to stop. When you started that sentence about one of your favourite websites being the damn data, I thought you were joking. But as you kept talking, I started to realise that you are being serious. You yeah yeah yeah. You do love well, this website. It would be interesting to know whether. Um, whether that's that website sees a spike in traffic whenever it's raining. <laughs> I suspect it does. Yes, but, uh, presumably so. Yes. Well, at least well, you're still receiving fluoride. Um, you know, there's chunks of Wellington and the Wellington region which are not. Oh, yeah. Bronwyn, great segue into a topic none of us have uh, have prepared for, but go for it. it no, it's well, worrying, uh, no. isn't it? Well, I mean, I wasn't prepared to talk about dams. <laughs> <laughs> well, good job bringing it back to a topic at least we should be talking about. Apologise for talking about the weather. Um, we might we might want to talk to Daniel Ryan about that. Maybe that'll be a topic for a future podcast. We can get him to come mm. on and talk about um what the hell's been going on with fluoridation, how the government screwed up, and you know how they might be basically planning to fix it as soon as possible. But it seems that the problem in Wellington is is just an issue of uh, old facilities that, and um, broken equipment. But it, you know, it's um, you know, that affects Poor Rua and Manor Manor Park, Stokes Valley, Wellington City and Upper Hutt. You all pretty much just described Wellington there, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wellington City. It's like, well, okay, so that, Lower Hutt's okay. So so that that on a related topic, I saw a very brief video today that was put out by Voices for Freedom, and they had a guy on there who was talking about encouraging people to submit their names to stand for local body elections, mm. and that the deadline for that was coming up on August the 12th or something. And so it seems they're trying to follow the American model where they're getting trying to get people onto these sort of local bodies and school boards and stuff who have all these sort of extreme views and the freedom loving views and wanting to exclude fluoride and wanting to stop people wearing masks and all that sort of thing. It's kind of scary, really. Interesting, because that did happen a few years ago over here when um, Fluoride Free NZ tried to get anti-fluoride people onto the boards of DHBs. Um, and then, you know, shortly after that, the government went and centralized it. <laughs> hmm. So the DHBs no longer were the decision-making bodies, which was... Uh, Great. I think it was. Oh no! It's sorry. It was. It was when they were looking at being DHBs. So basically, the the government was looking at moving where the decision making was from local councils to DHBs. That's and right. at that point, yeah. fluoride free were looking at. Well, we need to start stacking the DHBs because obviously prior to that, they'd been focusing on the councils. 
Um, and now, of course, I guess the DHBs are no more, right? So it's it's all pretty much central that there's one central decision making. Um, and thankfully, that decision is that we need to have fluoridated water, which is great. Yes, and it, and it, all, it certainly makes sense that people actually know about the effects of fluoride and the, and the health benefits of fluoride are actually making decisions rather than just your random zealot who happens to have been able to get onto a local board to push their hobby horse of uh, stuffing yeah. people from being fluoridated. But I, I, um, speaking of speaking of um, people trying to get into um, positions of power. Um, <laughs> oh, hang on, just, just, just quickly. Just quickly before that, I have a little bit about fluoride still and councils and how weird it is. I went with Daniel Ryan, who's the the head of Making Sense of Fluoride and one of our Skeptics Committee members. I went to a Lower Hutt Council meeting, um, maybe 2015 or so, where they were discussing fluoride. And that was a fascinating experience. The way it basically went was when we walked in the room as the fl- pro-fluoride people, it immediately became obvious that half the room was pro-fluoride. And they came and said hello to us and shook our hands. Half was anti-fluoride and they were hanging around with Mary Byrne and the other anti-fluoride people. But then there was one woman in the middle didn't give a crap about it at all. She just sat there knitting for the entire meeting. <laughs> she was not interested in fluoride. I guess she had to attend the meeting anyway. Um, but yeah, I was I was quite surprised that, you know, much as this was meant to be a meeting where both sides gave evidence it seemed just walking into the room straight away, everybody already had made their minds up. Um, now you're and- going to die. Sorry, <laughs> my phone went. <laughs> From when, are you secretly right. watching videos while I'm talking? Am I that boring? What the hell is going nope. on? Nope, someone sent me something and I thought I had the volume off so I could read the text. <laughs> All right. That makes me feel a little bit better. Thank you. <laughs> but it was a great it was a great bit of audio there. And now you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Craig, sorry, back back to your segue onto the, the topic. Yeah. So um yeah, speaking of kooks who are trying to get into power, there's um there's been some action from Brian Tamaki, our favorite Destiny Church apostle, or Eft Apostle as he's known. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I also like the other one. Is it Pastor of Muppets? Right. So, yeah, there's some more marches coming up. Yeah, he's, um. what, there's going to be a march in Auckland, a march in Christchurch, and then there's going to be another convoy from both the North and the South Island, and then they're going to come to Wellington uh, to clear out Parliament and have a people's court for crimes against New Zealand. So, you know... Oh, yeah. He's, he t- when he did his march a few weeks ago in Auckland, he was talking about very ignorantly about the Sri Lankan solution in which, you know, was it the president or was the prime minister of Sri Lanka? Which what model do they use? That's a good question. Well, anyways, the leader of Sri Lanka was expelled by, you know, by the people. And so well, Tomaki is basically positioning himself as a similar sort of folk hero is what he's trying to do. Right. And I think at this point, that sort of language, which is bordering on sedition, but New Zealand doesn't have sedition laws. You know, this is a point where it starts sounding quite dangerous. I think the threat of violence is a lot higher than it was with our freedom camping. He's uh, 
certainly seems to be trying to rally the troops. And I think we've discussed it before, but there was, he's trying to, maybe he's listening to our podcast, but he's trying to um, get all of the disparate political groups together under a single banner um, so that they can breach the 5% threshold and, and get into parliament. Hang on. Do we do we think that Brian Tamaki is listening to our podcast? Because I would absolutely love it if that was happening. Maybe he does. Maybe he's got one of those media monitoring services where, you know, he pays a company to listen to everything and flag whenever Destiny Church, Destiny Church, Destiny Church is mentioned. <laughs> Brian Tamaki, Brian Tamaki, Brian Tamaki. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And then he has to sit there and basically listen to what we say. So he's aware of, you know, what the sentiment is like in the public about him. Um, just yeah, going back we... to Sri Lanka. Oh, just going back to Sri Lanka for a minute. They have both a president and a prime minister. And it was the president that got expelled. OK. Yes. Right. Or fled, I should say. And so and then the prime minister took over. Is that correct? Um, the person who took over, I don't know what role he had. Um, yeah, I think the prime minister does take over in that sort of situation. Oh, okay. So um, so anyway, yeah. So what you're saying about Brian Tamaki listening, actually one of our regular listeners, um, Richard, who comes along to some of our Wellington skeptics in the pub meetings, even though he lives in Auckland, weirdly. Um, he keeps telling me that on our podcast, we are giving away too much information to our enemies. And I told him it was actually quite flattering that he thinks that our enemies are taking the time to listen to our <laughs> podcast. What what should we be censoring? What, what, what should we not be saying? I don't know. I, I think talking about our plans and things like this, I think, yeah, he doesn't want to give us uh, to give this kind of stuff away. We should just do it and not talk about it. I would love it. Well, I would love it if Libby and Alia from Voices for Freedom were listening. I would love it if Sue Nicholson especially was listening. Jeanette Wilson, Kelvin Crookshank, Ken Ring. I mean, if they're listening to our podcast, that would tickle me pink. Well, I mean, the, the, the best way to achieve that would be for us to have a transcription of our podcast. And, <laughs> and then it's, it's a lot more Googleable, I guess. And then when they get... And they'll get a, uh, a Google alert when their name comes up and um, ah. hear what we had to say. All right. I will look into that. Surely these days we must be able to get an AI to transcribe. Although I don't know. I mean, can you tune a single AI for a Kiwi accent, a British accent and a Canadian accent? Or is it just going to be way <laughs> too confused? Well, I, I know that Alexa understands me. Does she understand you? And <laughs> Actually, you Alexa doesn't. Um, well, Google does not understand me very well. Right. Really? Understands my husband great, but sometimes it says, I don't understand what you're asking. It's like, please turn on the light. I'm sitting here in the dark. Just turn the damn light on. Um, a bit more intuitive there, Google. Yeah, I think Google's okay with me, but I tend to be quite loud. So I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, so Brian is organizing some more matches. Um, All right. So Bronwyn, are we going to visit? When they arrive in Wellington, do you think this should be a field trip? Ooh, that's tempting. I'll be keeping my distance and I'll be we wearing haven't. my N95 mask. <laughs> we could have some field trip audio to include in the podcast. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, I, it's all up to you. Are, you. are you happy putting the time in to stitch some audio in? Sure. I'm a <laughs> and, awesome and, and if any listeners want to organize a counter protest, while we always recommend taking optimal safety measures, uh, we do have a small grants through the Skeptics Committee. <laughs> yes. And if you get in contact, maybe we can help you with uh, funding some supplies. <laughs> I like it. We, you reckon we could uh, fund some eggs? 
No, not flour. eggs. <laughs> no. So there's there's garden steaks. I did this years ago when I did the counter protest for the Jesus for NZ protest at Parliament. And we went in um, basically protesting that all gods needed to be in parliamentary prayer and not just Jesus. But we picked up, I think, garden steaks or bamboo, was it? Uh, but some kind of garden like bamboo steak stuff, uh, core flute is that kind of corrugated plastic stuff. And then mm. went to warehouse stationery and did printing and maybe two dozen signs cost about 60 bucks. It wasn't too bad. So if anybody wants $60 to make a bunch of funny signs to protest against Brian Tamaki, the skeptics would probably be very happy to give you money. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be, actually, it would be interesting to come up with some creative signs, but color them in the Voices for Freedom colors. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Do it really subtly. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. You need to come up with some good slogans, though. Yeah, it'd be nice to know what slogans they're going to use. I mean, but this is the Freedom and Rights Coalition, but will Voices for Freedom be there as well? In the video that I've seen of all these sort of protest matches, there's always those Voices for Freedom um, signs apparent in the video. And I think that they just are a magnet for those particular types of people. Yeah. So what is it like teal background and green writing or something, isn't it? Yeah. It's very easy to recognize. It's plastered all over their website. So I'm sure we could uh, we could emulate it. I wonder if they'd sue us <laughs> stealing their branding. As we learned from our podcast a couple of months ago, if we're uh, if we're sued for that, like if we're sued for defamation, I guess we just apologize and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't realize they were your colors. <laughs> And style and you can't copyright the rainbow no no but you can refuse to wear it on your uh, sports jersey right mm, yes yeah mm. well we could get into that but i have a feeling that uh, we've, we've gone on for quite some time well just before we um sign off just a little bit from membership corner if you're liking what we do we'd love to have you uh join the skeptics just go to our website and fill out the forms and start paying some money and you know be the first to read our newsletter, know when the podcast comes out, and uh, hear when our conference is happening. And it is happening. We, we have options, so you'll find out soon. Um, then um, on Thursday, August the 4th at 6.30 p.m., it's the science-based healthcare activism in the pub at the Fork and Brewer this weekend. So, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about that for uh, the people who have never heard about this before? Yep. Be there or be square. <laughs> Helpful. Um, then Friday, August the 12th at 6 p.m. is Skeptics in the Pub Wellington. That's our regular fortnightly meetup inside the Intercontinental Hotel. Um, it's been really great to see um, people who've listened to the podcast show up. Um, we'd love to see you guys uh, keep on coming back. You sound a little bit too desperate there, but yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, do I? Okay, don't come at all. We don't like you. You're ruining our vibe. Is that better, Mark? Come as often as you like, but it's lovely to see you. I don't know. Maybe that's just creepy now. Yeah. Um, yes, and then do we have a do we have a cyberspace as well? Not until the next podcast. Okay, awesome, that's then. August the nineteenth. Would be um, cool. our next online meeting, but we'll remind you um, at our next recording. And actually, I need to be reminded that I need to uh, add a little advert for our skeptics in cyberspace meetings to the newsletter. So I will I will try and go and do that this evening. Um, just to let the people that don't listen to this podcast, so not you, but I'm going to let other people know that we have our cyberspace meeting, if that makes any sense. Weirdly, it does. <laughs> wow, you get me. I love that. 
All right, you have been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, the best way to get hold of us is to send us an email, newsletter at skeptics.nz. Is it not podcast at skeptics.nz? I don't think we've got that working. No. I'll go and check just in case because I think okay. I might have used right. it recently. But yeah, it, yeah, okay. Sorry. Okay. Some, some, some random thing at skeptics.nz will no doubt get to us. <laughs> yes, pretty much. We will um, see you all next time. Bye. Bye. See you later. <laughs>